Well, we are blessed today to have our oldest son, John Thomas, come to minister the word here in a moment. And, uh, of course, John is on staff at a mega church. A mega church is a church that's over 10,000 people down in Irvine, California, a great church called Mariner's Church. And he works in their rooted area, which is their small group and uh, system. And uh, he actually wrote some of the curriculum, brought one of his books with us. And we're pretty impressed. He's a pretty cool guy. And uh, he's, uh, he's doing a good work, doing a good job. Of course, John is married to Lindy, and they uh, have our little granddaughter, Olivia, who's four years old, and they live in Southern California. He was on staff for, I think, close to five years and uh, served wonderfully here. And he's, a, he's not just our son. He's a real great guy and a real wonderful man of God. So I want you to welcome John Thomas. He comes to minister the word today. Let's give him a hand. You're clapping now. Oh, sweet Lordy. It's great to be here this morning. And I'll tell you, all the great words and everything are awesome, but there's nothing more impressive to me. And I've grown to like appreciate this even more, um, having not been in the same place our whole ministry life, but being able to be in a, a community and invest in a in a city and a people for 31 years, 32 years in July, 31 years in July. To me, that just speaks volumes of persistence, of faith, of perseverance, and not just of them, but for many of you guys that have been here for that entire journey. How many of you guys have been here for, for 20 plus years? I'd love to see that. That's amazing. Guys, that just speaks volumes. And I can see the faces of many of them that I've I've seen my entire life, and to me, that just speaks volumes to, to the work that God is doing here, and you're to be commended for, for that, because it's not just their story, it's your story, and it's not just their story and your story, it's God's story. And that's a good story to be a part of, isn't it not? So good stuff. And yeah, unfortunately, my wife and, and little one couldn't be here today, so you get me, and that's, that's okay. I'm, I'm a little bit better looking when they're around, but we're going to have fun uh, regardless. And you know, it's, it's great being a dad. She's four years old now which is incredible. And we're really enjoying the journey of being parents and particularly just seeing her grow up and begin to have an awareness of who God is and ask these just adorable questions and these adorable statements. I don't know if some of you guys maybe follow us on Facebook or whatever, but the other day my wife was putting her down to bed and she, she was just uh, trying to get her to be calm and be quiet and reading her, her stories. And out of nowhere, she said, you know, mommy, Jesus, he lays next to me and he pats me softly on my back. And he's doing that to me right now. And I'm just like, oh, melt your heart, you know, just the cutest things ever. Uh, she recently, she, she's in preschool. So it's a Christian school actually on the campus of, of where we work. So it's great. She's on the first floor. My wife works on the second floor and I'm on the third floor. So we're all together, which is, which is amazing. And, and they're singing all these great songs. Right now, her favorite song is Our God is an Awesome God. And we recently went up to Lake Arrowhead and the whole way back, I kid you not, from about uh, Temecula or so, all the way back to where we live in Costa Mesa, about an hour, she sang, our God is an awesome God, the entire way home. and made us look for all the different versions that we could find on our, on our phone, which is a lot of fun too, because she really liked some of them. The other ones she didn't like so much. But uh, it's just great to just see your kids grow up and to have an awareness of who God is and to ask questions about who God is. One of the other cool things is to see how your grandparents interact with your kids and some of the things that you're willing to do, which I don't think they did even for me sometimes. I think I have a picture. They were down here recently about a month ago. Uh, we were, uh, this is actually at our home in, in Costa Mesa for my, for my daughter's uh, four-year-old uh, birthday party. 
And uh, it was a Muppet-themed birthday party. And you may or may not be able to tell who that guy is in that Swedish, Swedish chef costume. That is your pastor right there. That's him. And I wish I had audio for that because he was doing the whole smorgasmorgasmorgasmorgasmorgasmorgasmorgasmorgasmorgasmorgasmorgasmorgasmorgasmorgasmorgasmorgasmorgasmorgasmorgasmorgasmorgasmorgasmorgasmorgasmorgas
I like that question, but I also very much dislike that question. Because I want to say yes, absolutely I am a Christian. I'm one that follows Christ, but it may not be how you understand a Christian to be. Because when people think about what a Christian means, I mean, some of the words that they're associated with are often what? What are some of the words you think maybe those outside of the church would associate with Christian? We're small enough, we can all play together. What do you guys think? What are some of those words? Televangelist, yeah, come on. We love it. I live down the street from TBN. No joke. We pass it every day. It's awesome. We feel the anointing. You know what my daughter Olivia calls it? She calls it the terrifying place. Not because there's anything wrong with what's, but there's, there's a, I shouldn't have, but there's a tour that you go through the Easter resurrection thing and there's a whole earthquake scene and Jesus raises from the dead and it's terrifying. She cried in there, so she calls it the terrifying place. Anyway, okay, so tell, tell evangelist. What else? What are some other words that those outside of the church would associate with Christians? Judgmental. Judgmental, yeah, right? Say what now? Hypocrites, yeah. Hypocrites, moralist homophobic maybe even, uh, sometimes folks that they relish the fact that they're going to heaven and secretly they relish the fact that maybe others aren't. Judgmental, hypocritical. And it gives me pause because we have to say, well, how did we get here? You know, a lot of that is on us in some regards and a lot of that is, is on others too just to actually dive into community and see what it actually means to live out what it means to be a Christian instead of maybe just asserting a certain definition to it because of your limited experience or whatever that might, might be. But it, it gives me pause because I have to say, well, how, how did we get here? How can this word Christian, this beautiful word, also be a word that's explosive, that's divisive, that even conjures up just feelings of, of anger and, and hurt and brokenness? The reality, guys, is, is the term Christian it actually only appears three times throughout the entire Bible. Only three times. And when it appears, it's really used by those who are outside of the community of faith to describe those who are inside the community of faith. And when it's used, it's often used as a derogatory term, a descriptive term, but not a term of definition, a term to describe a certain sect of people. You know, there was a lot of rumors going on in the early church. They heard about this, they called them almost like a mystic set of Judaism. They knew they were, believed in, in, in Yahweh, the one true God, but there was these weird things going on there. They even thought maybe they were cannibals because they talked about consuming the flesh and the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean, right? So, and they said they heard them talking about wanting to become like Christ. So they called them little Christ. And to shorten that term, they called them Christians. You know, if you're from Ephesus, Ephesians. If you're from Galatia, Galatians. If you're from Corinth, if you're from Mars, Martian. All right, just making sure you're paying attention. Thank you, Pastor Tom. <laughs> Christ follower Christian. A term used by those outside of the community to describe those inside of the community. Even a derogatory term. And you know, we have those terms today. What do we call those folks that really are into Star Trek? We call them Trekkies. Trekkies. How about Grateful Dead folks? What do we call them? Deadheads. Deadheads. Any recovering deadheads in the house? <laughs> Just kidding. Or uh, what about Justin, uh, Justin Bieber fans? Do you know what we call those guys? Believers, right? Justin Believers. Is that what you say? Something like that. Beaver Believers. I don't know. Something like that. 
But often the term, again, it's a negative term to describe those that are inside the faith. And the first time that we see this, see this term is actually appears in Acts 11. And just to set the scene in Acts 11, verse 21 through 26, uh, this is after Jesus has ascended to heaven. And they've been given the great commission, the great call to go to Judea, Samaria, and the other ends of the earth to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And they haven't gone yet because they're quite comfortable in Jerusalem. And also they're a little bit terrified of what's going to happen. And so we see Stephen uh, preaches the first message out and he becomes the first, mar- not the first message, but he becomes the first martyr of the Christian faith. He becomes the first martyr. And so this martyrdom, when Stephen is stoned for proclaiming who Jesus is, causes the church to then go out and disperse, not maybe such a way to fulfill the great call, but in a way to scatter because they were slightly terrified of what was happening in their hometown of Jerusalem. So great things begin to happen, um, particularly in Antioch. And we get this verse here because uh, one of the apostles, Barnabas, is sent to Antioch to investigate what's going on. Because now all these Gentiles, right, non-Jewish people are becoming Christians. And in verse 21, this is Barnabas' report as he goes into Antioch. He says this, The power of the Lord was with them. And a large number of these Gentile believers uh, turned to the Lord. Then Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there in the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. It was in Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. First time this term is used, even by those outside of the faith, these Gentile believers to describe those inside the faith. So again, it's a label. It's a description. It's not a strict definition. And labels, often they don't really mean anything. They're open to interpretation. And like we said, we have some labels today. We talked about deadheads. We talked about trekkies. Or maybe we could talk about preppies, right? Or uh, what are some of the other ones? Skaters or hipsters. Nobody really knows what hipsters means. I don't know. I guess it means if you have tight pants and like Hair, like, I don't know what that really means. This is just how we all look in Orange County. You, know, you can judge me later, maybe. Um, or our rednecks, right? What, is, what does that mean? What does that look like? But really, because Christian is not clearly defined in Scripture, it, we get to kind of play with it. And, and there's a lot of misuses of that. And so culturally, we define it by our experiences, by our expectations, good and bad, by maybe the kind of churches that we go to, because it's not clearly defined in the scripture. And often that definition is a negative one. Um, there's a band, if you don't know it, it, it uh, Mumford and Sons. It's a great, great band. And recently the lead singer was, was interviewed about uh, faith and about religion. And uh, his name is Marcus. And he says this, um, somebody asked him, well, while Mumford still says that he believes in Jesus, he doesn't really like the label. And he says this, I don't really like that word. It comes with so much baggage. So no, I wouldn't call myself a Christian. I think the word conjures up all these religious images that I don't really like. Um, I've kind of separated myself from the culture of Christianity. And that's probably not completely helpful either, is it? To just pull away from it. And it's not like this guy is some you know, bad dude. This guy's, his parents are both actually pastors. And they pastor the vineyard movement in the UK. And he grew up, he grew up in the church. And he's, he's seen some of that. But because of perhaps some of the negative connotations of what that, what that means. And even if you call yourself a Christian to a certain, certain sect, he's, he's sort of pulled back from that in maybe a way that's not so, ha- so healthy. But we might think then, because it's not so clearly defined in the Bible, that Christian can mean whatever we want it to mean. And that we're kind of off the hook in, the, in that sort of a way. Well, actually, that's, that's not entirely the case because there's a word that we want to look at a little bit today. 
there's a far more dangerous word that's used throughout the New Testament. While Christian is only used uh, used three times, this other word is used 252 times. And it's used often by Jesus and his apostles to describe what it means to be someone who adheres to the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Anybody Anybody want to take a stab at what that word might be? Disciple, you guys were on it. Hey, that was supposed to be a lot more revealing. You weren't supposed to. You guys are on it because you know this stuff, right? A disciple. Jesus calls us his disciples. Uh, Just a few passages here in Acts where this pops up. In Acts 6, 7. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. You don't have to turn at these ones. We're going to get to them quite fast. And then in Acts 9, 36. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. And just to say, that's probably a good choice between Dorcas and Tabitha. I don't know if you, if you could go either way. Um, and she was always doing good and helping the poor. Acts fourteen twenty one, They preached the gospel in the city and won a large number of disciples. And you might think, Skeptically, well, that's just semantics. Christian disciple, potato, potato, whatever. It's, it, it doesn't really matter. We're actually, the implications of that, they, they do matter for us. Because while Christian is defined culturally and not strictly by our scripture, defining disciple is something that we can see. To be a disciple means to be a learner. It means to be an apprentice. It means to be a follower, a disciplined adherent. A disciple is someone who says, you have a way that I don't know about, that I don't fully understand, that I want to learn from. A disciple is someone who says to the master, no matter what the question, my answer is yes. Because you have a way, a system, an understanding that I don't know about, that I want to learn from you. A friend tells a story of a girl who was an art student in Europe. She went to go study sculpting at a really prestigious art school and people would come from all over the world to to learn this art of sculpting and in different mediums and some of them would be there for years on end struggling to learn this art struggling to perfect it and he went and visited and he said hey how do you know when when someone's ready you know when you're at another school you you do your four years and you get your degree and and you're done well this one was a little different and he wanted to know well how do you know when you're done and the, and the master, the teacher, just looked at the person and said, well, here's how I tell. When the work of the master is indistinguishable from the work of the teacher, of the student. When you can't tell the difference. When it's so close that it looks similar that you, could, you can't tell if that's the work of the master, if that's the work of the student. And that's what it means to be a disciple. To follow, to learn to produce good things, good and perfect works that He's predestined for us to do that reflect not us and who we are, although our character is is a part of that, but point back to His glory, His redemption, and His salvation in such a way that the world looks at our lives and says, wow, that looks just like Jesus. The way that person works, the way that person raises their family, the way that person interacts with other people, the way that person loves, the way that person gives and serves, that doesn't look like a normal person. That looks like Jesus. No greater testimony than to someone to say that, to say, wow, 
There's something different about the way you live. There's something different about the way that you operate. And the question has to be for us. It has to be for me. Does the world look at us and say, yep, just like Jesus? Do they say that? Or do they maybe perhaps say something else? Obviously, none of us are perfect, right? <laughs> and we, we miss the mark and, and we do things that often are, are, are contrary. I know I do that all the, all the time. So it's a convicting question for me even to think about what does my life point, point to? But the question has to become for us, if we want to grow, if we want to wrestle and struggle with this, and this is a dangerous question, you know, are we truly living on as disciples? Or are we maybe living just as Christians? There is a difference. And we don't want to throw the, the baby out with the bathwater with that, right? I'm not suggesting that we stop calling ourselves Christians and change the name to Heart of the, Heart of the Bay uh, Discipleship Shinner. No, because it's a, it's, a, it's a great name. And you don't want to, you don't want to do that, right? Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't flow quite as good, so maybe not. HBCC works good. Um, but really, it's a question that we have to wrestle with. Are we living out a cultural definition, even a negative one, of, of a Christian? Or are we living according to Scripture of what it means to be a learner, a follower, an apprentice? What it means to be a disciple? What it means to be a person who says, you have a way I don't know about. And I want to learn from you and express it unfiltered through my understanding. Express it as you express it on the earth. Lots of verses that speak about what it means to be a disciple throughout, throughout the New Testament. And I actually chose the most difficult one because you're nine o'clock and you're coffeeed up, right? And you can handle it, right? Can you say we can handle it? We can handle it. All right. Of course you can handle it. Uh, let's look at this together in Luke, uh, Luke 14. This verse on discipleship, Luke 14, starting at verse 25. Uh, I put the NLT, but I'm actually reading from the NIV, so sorry about that. She's looking at me like, oh, come on. I did the wrong one. So, but no matter your translation, this should be pretty on par. Um, so this is Jesus here uh, during his ministry, defining about what it means to be, be a disciple. And something you should know about the passage is very interesting that he's He's traveling back and forth quite often between, uh, between Galilee and between Jerusalem as he's doing his ministry, as he's going back and forth. And each time that he travels, uh, word begins to spread a little bit more about who he is. I mean, people are being raised from the dead. The sick are being healed. There's, he's saying some amazing things about what it means to, to be in the kingdom, of, the kingdom of God. So there's a lot of curiosity about, about who he is. So each time he travels, he picks up a little bit more of a crowd. So here he has... Here, He's traveling in his ministry, and he's picked up a quite large crowd. And I don't know about, about you, but when I'm in front of a large crowd, I want to be persuasive, and I want to win people over, and I want to you know, make sure that they're in. And I think it's interesting what he does here to this, to this large crowd. Verse 25 says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus, which implies that what he's going to say is not just for some, but it's for everyone. And turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Isn't this just great and affirming on a Sunday morning at 9 o'clock? <laughs> Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, 
Everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one that is coming with, against him with 20,000? Makes sense. If he is not able, he will send a delegation with others while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. <laughs> I mean, my goodness. Isn't this a tough verse? I don't know about you, but it hits me in a particular way. I have to hate? That seems very contrary to what you, you told me to do. Leave mother and father, despise even my wife and my children. That, and obviously, Jesus is using language that's extreme. He's using language that is, it's, it's very, very extreme language to, to, to make a point. And what his point is, is, is no matter what else you have in this world, the good, whatever it is, nothing else can take that place of lordship in your life. That there's only one thing that reigns above everything else, and it's your relationship with me. And out of that relationship with me, of course, we can be in wonderful relationships with others. But that, that's, just, that's the seriousness that he wants us to, to understand of what it means to follow, to count the cost, to consider what that means. And, you know, we count the cost in, in other areas of life, right? Um, I love the, uh, the Carfax commercials. Have you guys seen those Carfax commercials? Somebody buys a car and they drive out the lot and the whole thing falls apart. And they say, well, you should have got the Carfax, right? And we do that when we, when, we, when we buy a car. We investigate. We want to get the Carfax. We want to understand what we're up against. We want to have knowledge. We want to have understanding of, of what we're entering into. I was staying up too late last night watching Pawn Stars. Anybody watch Pawn Stars? <laughs> I love that show. And these guys seem to be experts in everything that's flung across their desk that people are trying to sell them. Because they're really considering, hey, whether this is going to be a good investment for me. Whether this makes sense. Whether this is something that I really want to, want to do. And I think in the same way with following Christ, that there needs to be consideration. And, and many of you guys have already done that. And I'm preaching to the choir and you're living this out in radical ways. Just a consideration of there is a cost to this. Yeah. That there is something that he's asked me to lay down. And I can't say what that is for you. I imagine some of you guys have already experienced what that's been. I could venture to guess that it's probably more than you, you would expect. But there is a cost to following. But here's the great and the glorious thing. Is there is a cost, but there is also a great reward. There is a great reward for following Jesus. That in following Him, we have a hope, we have an eternity we have a salvation that's not only for later, but begins in the right here and the right now. Mm-hmm. That it may cost us much, but there's much to gain in following Jesus. Amen. I love um, Jesus' interactions with, with crowds. If you look throughout uh, the Gospels and maybe just circle all the times that he's in front of large crowds, it's, it's very interesting to me um, the, the amount of times that he's in front of large crowds and the things that he does when he's in front of large crowds. Because we see a Jesus who, who invites and he wants large crowds, but we also see a Jesus who provokes and who challenges. challenges. He says, come to me all who are weary, right? But he also says, take up your cross. So there's this tension of, of both and. And there's this one passage in particular that I love, and I, I think I've shared on it 
when I was here maybe a year ago or so, but um, love for us just to look at this together in, in Matthew 8. This is probably my favorite crowd interaction of Jesus of all time. I love this. In Matthew 8, looking at verse 1. He says this. <clears throat> just to say this follows um, in Matthew's gospel that the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus has been preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Large crowds have gathered to him. He's saying some radical things about the kingdom of heaven. He's saying some radical things about himself. And people are literally following him up a mountainside as he's preaching the, the greatest sermon of all time. And he says this, When he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. And a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And then Jesus reached out his hand. He touched the man and he said, I am willing, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. And then this is very interesting. Then Jesus said to him, see that you do not tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer, offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. I love this passage because there's a lot of things going on. It starts with large crowds came with him as he came down the mountainside. And what happens as he comes down the mountainside is he's, he's encountered, he's, he's face-to-face with this man with leprosy. And we know a few things about people with leprosy, and I'm sure you guys have, have this understanding. It, it was a horrible physical ailment that would be on, on the skin, and it was a, just a horrendous aff- affliction. And not only was it physically just it would torment you, but also socially, if you were a leper, you were an outcast. You couldn't hang out in public squares. They would actually ship a lot of them off to islands because they couldn't be around them. They thought maybe they were possessed with demons. Um, and to be around a leper, if you were to be touched by a leper, you yourself would become like a leper and you would become unclean. So you couldn't go to the temple to worship. You couldn't participate in the feast. You couldn't even be with your family if you became unclean. So we have this great picture of Jesus proclaiming who he is in the Sermon on the Mount coming down the mountain, encountering a man with leprosy, and then the Messiah, the living God, reaches out and touches this man, making himself in the eyes of others unclean. A very dangerous, a very risky thing. Jesus, full of love, full of grace, touches this man, and he says, be clean. And then he does a beautiful thing to him. He not only heals him physically, but he tells him to go to the temple, show yourself to the priest, so that he can not only be restored physically, but he can be restored socially, so that he can worship, so that he can have a family. But what does he tell the man as he reaches out and he touches him? Don't tell anyone. Uh, Jesus, right? There was large crowds, right? They were all with you. We, we read in Matthew 8, the Sermon on the Mountain, and coming down, large crowds. Well, what does that tell us as he reaches out to touch this man? There ain't nobody there anymore. <laughs> there ain't nobody there anymore. Because they heard the word of Jesus, but when it came to applying the word of Jesus, they scattered. Because as this leper came out of the bush, you know what he would have to do in a public square, in a public setting, and there was hundreds of people around? He would actually have to declare his presence, enter in and say, unclean, unclean. And that would be the signal to get out of Dodge. There's an unclean, demon-possessed person that if he gets near us, we can't worship. We can't be in the club anymore. And they missed it. 
they missed joining the redemptive work of Jesus because of their fear. Because that they were too concerned with their place and with their standing. They heard a great word from Jesus, but when it came down to actually applying it and living with him in the trenches, in the dark and the dirty and the difficult places, which, by the way, is where exactly we are called to go with the message of hope and light and salvation. Where else are we supposed to go? But to dark places to bring light, to broken places to bring healing. But they miss it because of fear, because of maybe being socially outcast because of the implications of what that would mean. They missed the redemptive work of Jesus. There is a cost, but there's so much to gain. In following him down the mountain, we join with his redemptive work to bring hope, to bring salvation, to bring healing, to dark, to hurt, to broken places. Because that's where the gospel message is meant to go. We receive it, so we can give it. We experience it, we live it, so that we can give it to others. It's not for us. In one sense, it is for us. We get salvation, we get healing, and He does that for us. But He wants to do something through us. This is the great mystery for me of the gospel. And this sounds sometimes controversial, that Jesus actually depends on us, His people. He depends on his church to be a people that will hear the word of God, receive the word of God, but then live it out and express it as disciples and as followers of the living king. Even when it's risky, even when we feel like I can't go into this place because there's so much to gain. There's so much to gain in doing that. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he sold all that he had and he bought the field. The kingdom of heaven, relationship with God, is more valuable than any earthly thing that we can encounter. What do we gain in Christ? We gain hope. We gain a hope that's not superficial. We gain a hope that tells us that we can be joyful in grief when life is hard. And sometimes life is hard. Sometimes there's things that happen that we don't understand. But we don't mourn as those that mourn without hope. We mourn because we have a hope. We mourn in a fashion that we have a hope, a confidence, a joy in our eternal Father. That we can have joy in suffering. We gain hope in that way. We gain power by following Jesus. We gain the power of the Holy Spirit who's inside of us. The same power that raised Christ from the death is in you. To live a radical life of faith. We get to partner with his work, confident of the power that he has, that he has given us. Yes. Um, we go to Disneyland a lot. A little confession <laughs> for you. Because we live about 15 minutes away and we have a Disneyland pass because that's what you do when you have a four-year-old. And I think we might go tonight when I get off the plane. We'll see how that goes. Um, <clears throat> my wife had a, had a late meeting, so I decided to take Olivia, just her and I. And she's a thrill seeker. She loves roller coasters. Ever since she was a young, very small, she wanted to do the coasters that she was too, uh, too small for. She just has always loved that. And when she was two and a half, she went on Splash Mountain for the first time, which is probably the most terrifying ride that you can go on uh, for a kid uh, of that age. You know, that's the one that has that giant drop that goes straight down. <clears throat> I remember we were walking 
and getting popcorn. And she heard the screams as people were coming down and, and just terrifying screams. She said, Daddy, Daddy, I want to do that. <laughs> like, okay, we'll go do that. So we did that when she was two and a half. Well, a couple of months ago, we were back at the park and she hadn't been on the ride for, for a while. And I could see she was looking at the ride and she couldn't quite remember exactly what the ride was. But she said, Daddy, I want to do that ride again. Let's go do that again. Like, okay, if you want to do it, let's go for it. Remember, it's a little scary. I don't care. Let's go do it. So we waited in line. And as we were getting closer, the screams got louder and louder. Then I could tell she was remembering, oh, yeah, this is the ride with that really terrifying drop. But she said, I want to, I want to do it. So I checked, made sure she was okay. And we got up to the very front of the line. And, and we actually were in the front row of this log cabin. Oh. So I was like, oh, I don't know. And the other terrifying thing about this ride is most rides, they can sit in front of you and you can hold, hold them right there and they're on the same seat. Well, this one, she has to sit in her own seat. And so she sat in the very front. Before I can grab her, she, I'm going. I'm going to the very front. I'm like, okay, let's go do that. So we're going up, singing zippity-doo-dah, having a great time. And, and then the ride gets dark and we begin to go up the, the incline. And, and I was just thinking it's similar, you know, to... The Sermon on the Mount, even, as, as we're going up with Jesus and everything's okay and everything looks fine and we're receiving these great words and the ride is, is okay and we feel like we're having a, a great adventure, a great ride. But then I, we get up to the very top, the pinnacle, and you look out and you can see the entire park. And she looks back at me real quick. And I look at her and, and I think maybe she's going to start crying, but she has this giant smile on her face. <laughs> this is it, you know, this is the part. And, and I think... I think we actually have a, have a picture of what happened next on the ride here. <laughs> yeah. I'm screaming, she's smiling. And I didn't tell her to put her hands like that. That's just what she decided to do. Hands in the air, taking on the ride, laughing all the way down. And I thought, man, what a, what a just great picture. What a great picture of what it means to be somebody who follows Jesus with the whole of our lives. <laughs> I just love it. Because look, she's not afraid. She's going down ready to face the adventure. And she's doing that because she's secure. She's safe in the arms of her father. Because her father's love surrounds her. Because she knows who she is in the love of her father. And it's the same for us, guys. Discipleship can cost something. Yes, it, there's all those things. But here's the beautiful thing. We're always safe and secure in the arms of our Father. He has you. He loves you. He knows you. And He's calling you, no matter to what stage of life that you're in, He's calling you to a great adventure. He's calling you to a great adventure, one that you'll be safe in, one that might have moments of, of fear or whatever, but one because of His love, because of His security, that you'll be safe in. And he doesn't want you to miss the ride. He's saying, come with me. Follow me. Learn from me. And I will embrace you. I will give you rest. And in that place of rest, in that place of surrender, we can encounter some great things. Taking on the world together. I just love that. Just a great picture of that. Because the reality, guys, is, is Romans tells us creation is... Is, is, what, is, what, is, what does it say? Creation is, is an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Creation, the world is waiting for people like that. Risk-seeking, adventurous people, secure in the love of their Father, who take on the world with love and with fearless abandonment. The world is waiting for those kind of people to be revealed. And what is it about those people that they're waiting to, to, to be revealed? 
where they're waiting, and this sounds really simplistic, they're waiting for authentic, impactful love to be revealed. There's lots of different things that we could say about what it means to be a disciple. Jesus says just one thing. He says, they will know you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. That's the marker. (laughs) And it seems so simplistic, but I'll tell you it's very difficult. It can be very difficult. But that's the marker of what it means to be a follower, to be a learner, to be an apprentice of Jesus Christ, is to love others in a way that points back to Him. Just want to read just one more thing and then we'll... And then we'll come to a close here. Um, there's this great, great document. And it's, it's a mouthful, so forgive me. But it's called the Epistle of Mephetis to Diagnotus. It's Greek. Okay, sorry. And uh, it's actually the, it's, it's this document that was written. We don't know exactly by who, but we know that it was written to somebody in the imperial court of Rome about the time when Christianity was beginning to spread, about two years after Christ had ascended to heaven and churches were were happening and great things were happening, uh, this imperial guy in the court of Rome said, hey, what in the world is this Christianity thing all about? Because he had heard some of these rumors, he had heard some of these things, and he he had this guy go investigate and say, can you just write me a statement of what it means to be a Christian? So what we have is really the first Christian um, the term, apologetic, the first apologetic ever written outside of the scriptures of, of what it means to be a Christian. And I just love it. I'd just love to read this to you because it's the description of, of what it meant to be a Christ follower. And I would hope that this is something that could be said for us when somebody says, can you tell me what it means to be a Christian? Here's what the person reported back. He said this, They love all men. They are persecuted by all. <clears throat> they are unknown and condemned. They are put to death, yet restored to life. They are poor, yet many are made rich. They are in lack of some things, yet they abound in all. They are dishonored, and in their very dishonor, they are, they are glorified. They are evil spoken of, yet they are justified. They are hated, yet they are blessed. They are insulted, and they repay insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners. They are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. They look like Jesus. There's something different about these people. In a culture where might is right and where power is the thing and it's all about what you have and and who you can put dominance over, there's something different about these people. There's something different about the way they love and the way they love that points to Jesus. And my prayer for me, my prayer for us is that we can be people whose lives, because of the way we follow Jesus, point to him because of the way that we love. Amen? Amen. Amen. So hey, there's a cost. There's a great reward. No matter where you are in this journey, my encouragement to you guys this morning would just be to to stick with it, to follow him, to... To count the cost, yes, but to know that there's a great reward for following him and that he wants to use your life, that it's never too late, that you've never missed it, that there's always something he wants to do in and through you as you follow him. Amen? Amen. All right. Thank you, guys. Let's stay right here for a second. Well, praise the Lord. Good word. Amen. We're encouraged by the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, um, John, let me do a little interview real quickly with you. We have yes. a few moments, and uh, you can go ahead and just uh, let the people know a couple of things about what's coming up. 
on, on your agenda, what's coming up in your schedule for the summer. Um, first of all, how long have you been on staff at Mariners? Yeah, I've been there for about 10 months now, and it's been a great journey, a great adventure. My wife, Lindy, has been there for about nine years okay. working there. And uh, What does she do there? She is an accounting supervisor, so she does a lot of the finance stuff. Okay, yep. all right. And so you were here from what years to what years? Uh, we were here from 2000 to about 2004. 2000 to 2004. Yep. You guys have been married now, you're 10 years or 11? No, 13. 13. 13. 13 in August. Wow. <laughs> you got yep. married the same? Yep. Got married a totally. week after. So 13 years here, 13 years there. Wow. Yep. Wow. Now, when you left here back then, uh, you uh, served in a, an associate pastor at a ministry called Soul Survivors. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Yep. So we came down and we were involved in this ministry called Soul Survivor, which was a local church, but they also did events and conferences for young people. And it was a plant from a, a movement in London. So we came down, we're involved with that, it was worship and associate. And then our, our pastor left and we actually pastored the church for about six years in Costa Mesa. Six years. And then yep. something happened there where there was another church that was close by and the name of that church was is redemption and uh it felt like it it seemed good to you and to the holy ghost and the other pastor for your church to join their church and tell us a little bit about that yeah it was a great adventure we we felt like our season was uh maybe not coming to a close but was going to be expressed in a different way so through some relationship with some other churches we, we got to know this church called redemption and we ended up merging with this church, which is like a church marriage, right? And, and often they don't go really well. Sometimes those are hard and difficult things, but this went extremely well. We had a lot, a lot of help and a lot of support. And when we entered into that relationship, Lindy and I even felt like that was like a, a, a paving of, you know, what you've done in the last six years is, is good, but there's a new season coming, and we didn't know what that was. We thought maybe the merger was that. And we were part of that for 14 months doing that together. The church was growing, doing some great things. And then we got uh, approached by uh, Mariners for about a position there. And it seemed like it was, well, it didn't seem like it was, it was totally God just orchestrating us, sort of releasing us of one thing and or being able to open up another thing for us. So, so what, are, yeah. what are some of your responsibilities there? I know that, that you, you've preached there a few times. You're going to be preaching there next Sunday as well. Yep. Give us a little, you know, Summary of what you're doing there. Yeah, so I get, get to do some teaching on there's some different venues. It's quite a large church, so we get to share in different, different venues. And then, like you said, we work with, uh, with life groups. And there's about uh, 2,500 people in life group that we're sort of responsible of to train and to equip, to write curriculum for. And, uh, and also get to serve in a lot of different capacities and do some great stuff from the church. It's a great place, a lot of great things going on. So now Last last Sunday, uh, actually you have three services. There's Saturday night and then there's two Sunday morning. Yep. And so last Saturday he was asked, because John plays guitar, he was asked to, to serve in that capacity. And what time did you have to show up to get ready for the f 5 o'clock service? Yep. Yeah, 1 o'clock. You, you come <laughs> at 1 o'clock and rehearse and you practice and then you stay till 8 and then you turn up in the morning at 8 in the morning and do it again. But... It's fun. All right. Interesting. And I got to wear makeup. You got to wear makeup. Good. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, for, for those of you who know John, I think this, this is good and interesting. Now, um, the Rooted is, is the, uh, it's the course that, uh, you know, that you're involved in. Mm -hmm. And then um, you have a sister church down in Kenya. Yeah. We have a partner church that's in Nairobi. 
that we work really closely with. They actually developed this discipleship curriculum. Uh, it's called Mazizi in, in there. In, in Swahili, that means rooted. So we don't call it Mazizi because most folks would understand what that meant there. So we took that and, we, and we've adapt, we adapted that and we worked together with them. And it's a 10-week discipleship course. And it's an amazing thing. We, we do that. Uh, people come to the faith for the first time. We do baptisms at the end of that. And then out of the rooted group, they, they turn into life groups. So um, the great thing is we're getting a chance uh, this, this summer to actually go to Kenya. I'll get to go on a team of about 35 of our pastors to meet with the church and our counterparts and to hear what they're doing and, and to uh, visit some of the different ministries that they're do, that, that's taking place in Nairobi. Nairobi is a great place. It's an urban center. It's sprawling. It's, I think it's one of the largest cities in Africa. But right outside of Nairobi is also one of the largest slums in Africa. So we're going to get to go there and, and minister a bit and just see what the church is doing there. And we're really looking forward to it. We have a couple of people on our staff that are from Nairobi, and, and they love taking us on tour. So it'll be my first time getting to do that. So that's coming up July, uh, June 30th, and yep. then you're going to be gone for about 12 or 13 days. So he'll be the second Thomas to go to Africa. Mom and Dad haven't gone yet. We do have in our heart to go there. But, uh, son, we're proud of you. We're, we're grateful for what the Lord is doing through you. A tremendous word today. Um, and what we're going to do here as we close in a moment is we're going to uh, ask for those of you who want prayer to certainly come forward here in a moment, whether it be for healing or the infilling of the Holy Spirit or just, just an encouragement of ministry. Uh, and so we're going to ask the prayer room workers to come to the front if you would. And uh, also, if you feel so inclined, we're not, we're not going to receive you know, a, you know, a full-blown offering today. Um, we're going to bless Brother uh, uh, John for um, you know his honorarium and so forth. But if you feel so inclined to to help him to go to Africa, what we're going to do is we're going to post a couple of ushers back there uh, with some buckets. If you're inclined to to give toward that, that would be great. That would be awesome. Um, pardon me. Yeah, just write it out to HBCC, and we'll make sure it goes to the appropriate place. Uh, to help him go. So if you want an envelope for that, I guess you could raise your hand real quick. And uh, we appreciate you guys and in, in, uh, giving toward that. No pressure, of course, but uh, just if you feel so inclined, please raise your hand. They'll get with you. Um, and then we have some prayer room workers that will be coming up here in a moment. And uh, by the way, we will be having service tonight. I'll be preaching the word and... Uh, I uh, have in my heart to, to take some time to pray a little bit more about the Oklahoma area. And then uh, I'll just circle the city this afternoon and see what to preach on. Maybe a healing service, may not be. We'll just see. But we'll just come together and rejoice. Amen. So we're going we're gonna to pray, and uh, you can write out whatever you're writing out and as you, as you go. Are you going to have buckets at all doors, guys? El- yeah, so whichever way you go out. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for this clear word today. Lord, we choose to become disciplined followers of you, adherents to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, that we not just hearers of your word, but we're doers of it today. We give you the glory for it in the mighty name of Jesus. We pray that you'll bless John, Lindy, their church family down there in in Irvine. Lord God, use them mightily as they go to Africa. Father, we pray a blessing upon them. And, Lord, thank you for the gifts that people are giving today, both in the offering and in this love offering. Father, we love you, Lord, and we honor you. I thank you for bringing increase into your, into your people's lives. In the mighty name above every name, the name of Jesus, amen and amen.